This is Crush on Radio, uh, episode five. My name is Rich, and I'm joined this week by a uh, man who has his fingers in many pies, as it were. According to your website, which I just closed the tab of, uh, you are a, a music and film producer, researcher, and historian. This is uh, Jeff E. Winner. Hi, Richard. Hi, Jeff. Thank you for joining me. Um, no problem. Yeah, you know, the whole premise of this, you know, talking to interesting people about the music that's important to them, and you, you're definitely interesting. You've got uh, a lot that you do. You're involved with uh, uh, all kinds with uh, the Raymond Scott archives. Uh, yeah, executive producing a couple movies, including something by some band from Ohio about a band from Ohio of some sort. Uh, you're breaking up a little bit, but I should correct you. I'm not an executive producer on anything. Oh, executive producer means the guy with the money, and that's not me. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> I would never put I would never put money into into a movie. It's too risky for me. All right. Well, either way, music is something that you are you are huge. Big, you're a big music person. Yes, of sorts. It's true. So, and you've got and so you picked something very interesting to talk about. Something that kind of surprised me. Um, you know, I asked you know something with a good personal story about it, and well, set this up for everyone. Yeah, it surprises me too. I, I'm sorry to say that I chose what I did in, in a sense because I don't think it's a good record. Um, and I don't like the band. I, I kind of hate the band. Um, but it was a really kind of important thing to me when I was very young. And you mentioned this a second ago that I'm a big music person, but it's true. And it started earlier than I have memories. I, I have no memories earlier than, than music. And what I mean is, um, the first spring that I was able to be old enough to have any memories of anything, my mother explained to me what flowers coming out of the ground was like. I think I was maybe four. But she was also a pianist, and she would play piano at home inside, and um, it was just magic to me, like nature, like the flowers. You know, It never occurred to me that a human made this or anything about the music business or the dissemination of distribution or anything like that. It was just there, just existed like the clouds. And so that's my earliest um, imprint of anything um, in my life. But um, the first record, first records, I should say, plural, that influenced me were my mother's record collection on the first floor and then my older brother's record collection, which they kept in the basement, of our house with a, a gigantic 1970s stereo system from Radio Shack. And, oh, well, uh, it was all, all realistic hardware, right? Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was. And, you know, back then, it, the idea was like bigger is better. So uh, big speaker cabinets and big everything, you know. And it was just kind of macho and ridiculous. My brothers were much older than me, you know, 10 or more years older than me. So on the first floor, my mother's influence on me musically from age four or five was stuff like Nat King Cole and the Gershwins and um, Manhattan Tower and, and uh, stuff like that. And then 
downstairs, things got scary with like Black Sabbath and uh, and um, Led Zeppelin and Ted Nugent and Pink Floyd. And so um, Pink Floyd had this double album called Oh My Gummer. And if I remember correctly, one album was live. Am I, am I right? Yep, yeah. Uh, one live disc and one collection of... It, it. It's interesting, Pink Floyd was one of my actual first musical loves. Uh, I've, I've fallen out of love with them since. Yes, I don't blame you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, this was, they were my first obsession... Uh, yeah. Basically, so yeah, I've got. I even have this on vinyl. The second disc is uh, it's basically the uh, Pink Floyd version of the White Album, where everyone got to do basically solo tracks. Yeah, well, Kiss Kiss did that too, so, so on separate albums. Yeah, and we know how well that worked out. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, um, yeah. So one disc was was live, and and uh, the other one was studio. And um, I had forgotten this, but I, I sort of brushed up on it. In preparing for your show, and and the, the two that the side that I played the most, I think by far was turns out to be Roger Waters' side. And uh, the uh, what, what happened was my brothers were who were much older than me. Remember, were trying to explain to me what stereo meant, what it meant to have two channels of sound, and they explained to me that one is for each each of your ears, you know, the left and right side, and and again, I was really young. I was supposed to be a bright kid, but I was still a kid. So they, to demonstrate this, rather than just explain it, they played that side of the album, which even according to Wikipedia is noted for its stereo effects and, and hard panning left to right. And, and then, uh, so we didn't have any headphones around apparently. So my brothers had me lay down on my back at age five on the floor and they maneuvered those giant speakers from Radio Shack to the sides of my head and played this record for me. <laughs> and it's, it's in retrospective, maybe it's kind of a little bit cruel because you know, when you're a little kid to hear something as weird as this, that's like playing it for someone who's on LSD maybe, you know? Um, but, uh, I, I understood what they were coming from and, and I was instantly hooked on it. I, I just love the, the novelty of the whole thing, of the sound effects, you know? Grandchester Meadows is one song, and the other one is titled Several Species of Small Furry Animals Gathered Together, uh, Living in a Cave and Grooving with a Pit. And I think I memorized that. <laughs> small age, a young age. And I found that fascinating too and hilarious. And in retrospect, that, that that's something that Raymond Scott did. You mentioned Raymond Scott earlier. He had long, ridiculous titles for no reason, good reason also, you know. But he did it in the 1930s. Anyway, um, I, I would, would love playing music for my friends. I, that was my favorite thing to do as a kid, was to turn people on to music. 
um, normal kids would want to go outside and play baseball or something. No, I wanted to bring them down into the basement and freak them out like my brothers had freaked me out, you know, because they didn't know anything about this stuff. It was the influence of much older brothers that allowed me this um, education and then also the even older records from my mom, you know. Okay, so um, that was phase one of this this record for me. And then uh, in in kindergarten, once a week, we have a music class. Hmm. I think I know where this is going. This is going to get interesting. <laughs> well, I don't know. But uh, sometimes in music class, we'd sing. Sometimes we'd try to play some kind of instrument, which, by the way, I, I don't do. I'm not a musician. But then one week, they said, next week, bring in a record that you want to play for the class. And... Uh, I was very excited about this <laughs> assignment for obvious reasons because I love sending people out to music. And um, so I brought in this stuff, the, 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 this record, which, by the way, another thing you, should, you have to mention about this album and why it was so fascinating is the artwork, you know? You, 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 had, you said you had the vinyl, right? Yeah, it's unfortunately it's in a storage shed in Philadelphia, but uh, yeah. um, it's when, when you're, you know, a, a high schooler who's you know, obsessed with uh, Pink Floyd, you know, you, mm -hmm. you do all the research, you do all, I, I wrote a, a bloody uh, research paper on the band for, uh, I think, a 10th <laughs> grade English class. <laughs> right, yeah. See, I, I know a lot about them, and I could do that too, but, you know, I, I don't blame you, I understand, that they're, they're a compelling story, with Sid and everything. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, your, your vinyl, was it the, the, the original artwork with the Drosty effect uh, photography? Exactly. Yes, I don't know whether it has the, uh, the whether it's the American pressing with the GG album cover airbrushed out from in front of the, mm. the window. Oh, right. But uh, oh, right, right. yes, I, I I'm that obsessive. <laughs> it didn't hurt that I uh, had a little refresh on Wikipedia the other night. So it's something that um, that it's lost in the digital age is is the big artwork that we had. You know, when I was a kid growing up in the '70s, and this was a one that opened up a gatefold, and it had this. If you're five years old, it's a really compelling thing. It's called a Drosty effect, where the image or the, the whole image appear, reappears within the image, and then that image reappears again within it, theoretically forever. And that's a um, you know part of foundation of fractal geometry. So, um, but not knowing that, just sort of staring at it while listening to these strange sounds and music. So, a complete like audio visual experience for for your imagination. So I take this record to kindergarten music class, and uh, I'm waiting my turn, and I'm kind of astounded by what everyone else brought in, because it's like, you know, Pop Goes the Weasel, and uh, <laughs> Mary Had a Little Lamb, and stuff like that, you know? Like, I don't know if you, if you know about this, there's a record label back in the old days called Peter Pan Records, and it was all stuff like that, like kitty records. <laughs> definitely, definitely before my time, unfortunately. But uh. yeah, well, it's not important. It's just like you know, there used to be like a genre of records that were just cute and funny little ditties for children. It wasn't like rock bands, you know. <laughs> and so I was kind of stunned that, that, that what what everyone else brought in, and you can imagine the contrast that my selection provided by you know compared to theirs. So I think the teachers thought that the, the Civil Species um, track was some kind of Nazi rant. <laughs> Wanted to talk to my parents afterwards, and it was just like a big, like, 
disaster. And um, this was before, like, this thing that happened in the 80s about, like, parents being alerted to the content of the wreckage, you know? So so my mother was unaware that, that what Alice Cooper was about or whatever. So... <laughs> So I, I kind of got us all in trouble, and it was just—it was just kind of a nightmare. But it just it goes to show you the power of this of this crazy music back then. You know, nowadays I don't think anyone would notice. Does it sound weird now? That, that stuff. It it kind of does, and it kind of doesn't. I mean, um, I'm definitely younger than you, but I'm. Oh yes. Yeah, you're not surprised by that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because we've met, and yes. um, yeah, I know. A lot of this stuff has happened in the past. Yeah, you, know, you you pick up. I'm a I'm a big Zappa fan. All you have to do is just listen to. It's not a highly regarded record of his, but uh, Mothers of Pre- meets the Mothers of Prevention. Oh right, I forgot the, about the whole that. the whole PMRC nonsense. And uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a sucker for for uh, audio collage stuff. Uh, which that has in spades. Yeah, yeah, and and maybe I'm being too hard on it or something, but. I mean, I guess it was sort of experimental and ahead of its time in, in a sense. I don't know. Well, I think I heard. Well, I got. I probably got into the audio collage stuff kind of by way of this of you know several small species hmm. or and so. Okay. Uh, and and we think about because I know I heard this before I heard stuff like Negative Land or the aforementioned hmm. Zappa record. So yeah. So um, you went through a Pink Floyd phase. Uh, didn't, didn't, well, we all did, I think, but yeah, yeah. Growing up in Philly, WMMR was always on in the car and my dad was driving, so. Right, right, right. Yeah. So you, you get, that, that was my early audio education, much the same way as you, you know, Sabbath, Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, The Who, ACDC. I guess the influence from, for you was from your dad. Yeah. I'll tell you another weird story. I don't expect you to use it for your show, but I just think you'll personally get a kick out of this. I was on a school bus with my Walkman, and I was listening to Freedom of Choice. And um, some tough guy in the back of the bus asked me what I was listening. And I said, Devo. And much to my surprise, he was like, oh, okay, yeah, that's cool. But then I, I realized the reason why he reacted that way was because he thought I had said D-O. Oh. <laughs> And it's like, you know, there was this whole, like, almost like kids' version of politics connected to what music you liked or would admit to liking or whatever, you know. I don't know if that still exists or was like that when you were a kid, but there's no doubt that that's what was happening in my experience in the 70s and 80s. There were kids who didn't really care what the music was as such. It was more like, you know, they go through a phase of life where they're trying on personalities and Maybe and this is another crucial thing that, that I was young when it happened was the invention of MTV and, and proliferation of music videos because now all of a sudden you had a whole visual image and attitude attached to a song or an artist and that was a big game changer in the music industry. So friends of mine would would see Billy Idol videos and think, "Yeah, I want to be a tough macho guy wearing leather like that," you know. Will kick some ass. They didn't really care what the music sounded like, or, you know, in and of itself. It was like they were buying into a whole personality, um, and that had never happened before. But for those of you who don't know, M- MTV, the M and, M- and MTV used to stand for music. They used to play music. 
that channel. You're kidding me. No. <laughs> <laughs> Music videos and concerts and stuff. Now I don't know what's, what's there. Is, is Jackass still on? I, I think so. I, I don't think I've put MTV on in years, years, years. But that was a big, a big deal. Right. Um, I know growing up for me, there was, there was a, I don't know if it was on the same scale, but you know, you had, I came of age musically right about the same time that the Napster hit. Mm-hmm. And so suddenly, you know, at least if you had an internet connection at home, you had access to everything. Yeah. You know, I don't know how the kids these days handle it because, um, you know, now you, uh, it's, we, this, it ties back to a conversation I had with, uh, in a previous episode of the show with uh, a gentleman named Ben Alexander, who was just talking about how, what, what does popular mean when you have, when everybody can listen, is listening to something completely different? Oh, yeah. I, growing, you know, High school in the late '90s, early 2000s uh, for me. <laughs> can, can we figure? Can, can we figure, get, let's see if the audience can figure out our age difference from that? Uh, <laughs> it, it's you know, you have you know the people who are interested in the pop music, you have, interest, you have the, the rap and hip hop people, and you have the classic rock people. Right. And it was interesting. You know, first half of high school I was all you know Pink Floyd, classic rock, yeah, yeah, yeah. And suddenly one summer I think come back to school and I'm suddenly all into Devo and Talking Heads and all the, you know, the stuff, uh, that early MTV stuff, as it were, mm-hmm. with all the uh, obsessiveness that comes with it for if you're a junior teenager. In a way, I suppose that follows the trajectory of, of the real music pop history there. I mean, Pink Floyd ends up being like the, the ultimate example, almost like Spinal Tap or something, of this long, drawn-out, wanking thing with too much production and too much studio time and, and then so the punks come along and just blow that all away uh you know strip it back to two minute three minute songs so i think your your, your evolution is a logical one there <laughs> i have a very short attention span you know i can s- never sit through wish you were here <laughs> <laughs> it's just so overplayed you know I'm so bummed out when I hear Pink Floyd. It's like a bad trip. I'd rather hear Silence. It's it's interesting. I do gravitate. I do listen to a lot of the older Pink Floyd, like the first album, yeah. Sid. When I when I used to listen well, to Pink Floyd, that's completely different. Animal. Exactly. Pun, pun I, not intended. Right. I, I I literally burned myself out on the Wall in high school. Right. I still can't listen to the Wall all the way through. It's. I would literally leave school. Put disc one and of the CD in the CD, <laughs> yeah. my CD in my CD player. <laughs> yeah, change CDs on the on the on the L. And the, going back to Phil, going back home to Northeast Philly. By the time I get home, I'd be you know roughly finishing the record, and I would do this every weekday. Mm-hmm. You try listening to something that many times without getting tired of it. Did you watch the movie obsessively? Not obsessively, but regularly. Yeah, I don't know. I think that didn't help. It's like suicide music, you know? It's just like, I don't know if it's a really positive thing for kids. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. Yeah, everyone, everyone has to make their, their musical mistakes. Um, you know, for me, it was, uh, it was a combination of Metallica, Corn, uh, and uh, Rob Zombie, mm. right before I suddenly had my awakening. Right. Terrible, terrible stuff all around. Well, Maybe early Metallica is not so bad, but probably some good Rob Zombie stuff, isn't there? I don't know, uh, or White Zombie anyway. Yeah, I'm not familiar with with uh, much of that stuff. Any of those bands you just mentioned? 
It's all right. You don't need to be. <laughs> I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a very well-rounded individual. I'm, I'm like the world's foremost expert on like five topics, and but I'm not. I don't know about a lot of major bands though at all. I bet your record collection is very thorough, isn't it? Uh, it's it's most of my my record collection is digital. <laughs> uh huh. Well, that's what I mean. I mean the music that you own, you probably know about like. A lot of new wave stuff. You're not just a Devo fan. No. You're probably into like Depeche Mode and New Order. You know all that stuff. Right. Bauhaus. Yeah. I don't really know. We have the advantage now. I have the advantage of, you know, being young, being tech savvy and having all of this stuff available to me. And uh, you didn't have it. You you had to rely on, you know, your brother's record collection. Oh, right. When I'm isolated as a kid in the 70s. Yeah. yeah. And it's... It, it's really a change in how we discover music and it, it probably let, let's change the subject a bit and how did you suddenly discover you know you're part of the Raymond Scott archives how did, how did you how did you go from Pink Floyd to Raymond Scott well before we go on I want all, all of your audience to know that um, I'm not wearing any pants <laughs> I think I have a show title okay so um, how do I go from Pink Floyd to Raymond Scott let's see um I gave up on, on the Floyd a long, long time ago. Um, and um, let's see, Raymond Scott came about because, like everyone else, I knew the music from cartoons and movies and wherever, wherever else it has been embedded in pop culture as soundtrack music. But when you're a kid, you don't think about who's making these cartoons, you know, who's writing this music. It's just there. And so it's like this musical fingerprint on the culture, like DNA, you just recognize it. So when I first heard um, the original Raymond Scott Quintet recordings, I just loved that band. They were so tight, so weird and interesting. So I became hooked on that. But then um, I was like probably the biggest Raymond Scott fan in the world. And then within a few months, I became a guy working on the projects and putting together CDs and writing articles and you know, people would come to me for interviews and stuff. So um, the thing that really piqued my imagination was Raymond Scott's electronic inventions and the music that he made with them. And at the time, that hadn't been researched at all. This was um, in the early, mid-1990s. There were no releases. No one had knew about it. And there was no World Wide Web either. Um, Al Gore hadn't invented it yet. <laughs> but, but then he did around 96, and I made one of the first websites in the world uh, for Raymond Scott. And I, I collected, uh, put photographs and text and sound clips and stuff. It's very primitive back then. So, um, and then I set about researching um, his recorded work and photographs and stuff, which was hard to do back then because, like I said, there was no easy way of researching online to find uh, patents, for example. I had to go to the 30th Street Library here in, in uh, Philadelphia and look through microfilm. And I discovered that he had several patents, official U.S. patents awarded to Raymond Scott for his inventions, his musical instrument inventions. Prior to that, it was assumed he never had any patents. No one bothered to look. Hmm. So me and the guys I work with put together this 150-page hardcover, full-color book with two CDs of his electronic music. And we did that in the late 90s, and it was released in the year 2000. And it 
changed history. It changed electronic music history. It altered everyone's timelines of what they had previously thought, which which really wasn't much, honestly. Um, believe it or not, nowadays when you see stuff about Bob Moog and his foundation and stuff, you think that maybe you know all of this stuff was always considered important, but it wasn't. The the, the um, art form of electronic music is still new, relatively new in the grand scale of things, and so the research into its history is also a recent endeavor. So, in other words, it wasn't till around the turn of the century that people started taking it seriously and looking into it uh, and, and documenting it. So it's not, it's not really surprising that, that that one release, which is called Manhattan Research Inc., by the way, which you can purchase from me at RaymondScott.com. And we will have a link to that in the show notes. And uh, it's, it comes highly endorsed by me. I, I've heard the, 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 the collection, and it's amazing. Yeah, uh, and I I have to agree with you in all modesty because you know it's his work and and we we did a good job of presenting it. But our job is is easy in some ways because he was just so amazing. He was so ahead of his time. Uh, you've heard it, right? I mean, you know you, those recordings sound like they could have been made today. Yeah, uh, some of them, some of them at least. And to think that he built the instruments that he's making the music on is just mind blowing. I've been doing this work for nearly twenty years, and he's still. He still fascinates me. Just blows my mind. So anyway, that was um, that was one of the projects. We've we've done several CDs, some compilations of, that we put together. Some are reissues of albums that, that he did in his lifetime. Um, I've written chapters for books, and um, we made a uh, documentary film about Raymond Scott. His son, his only son, uh, had a has a career in film and television. Completely unrelated to his father, he he um, worked on the the uh, very first Woodstock movie concert movie in 1969. He worked on the hippie musical called Hair. He worked for the TV show The Wonder Years and on Saturday Night Live and so on. He did films with Robert Downey Sr. Anyway, uh, he didn't really know his father um, very well. His they, his parents divorced when he was about nine. And so um, he wanted to sort of reconnect with his dad, even though he was dead by then. And so he came to me to do an interview and eventually asked me to co-produce the film with him. So that's called Deconstructing Dad, and that's on DVD now. And you can get that at scottdoc.com. I'll make sure to throw a link to that in our show notes as well for everyone out there. And uh, I've also seen this movie, and it's I, I found it very fascinating as well. Yeah, we've got interviews with uh, John Williams, who's the, who's um, the famous movie music composer, who did all the Steven Spielberg movies and Star Wars and all that stuff. His dad was the drummer in Randy Scott's band, and um, a bunch of other interviews with important um, people. Guy invented, co-invented the first Moog synthesizer. Uh, DJ Spooky, of course, is in there. Um, Mark Malisbaugh, you know who that is? Uh, wasn't he in some one-hit wonder band? From uh, the eighties, I don't know. Apparently, apparently he has a, a maid who's not happy, a disgruntled maid. Let's not um, go there. <laughs> so uh, the net effect of all this has been very successful. In other words, we we've managed to take a guy, a figure, Raymond Scott, who was once a household name, who was once um, an international pop star for decades, thirties and forties and fifties, sold millions of records all over the world, but then he. His, his name and his career kind of vanished. His music didn't disappear because it had been immortalized in so much media, but him as a figure 
was forgotten. You know what I mean? So we've successfully turned that around, and not only that, but added a whole other wing onto his uh, his reputation, and that's the electronic stuff. Because now he's included in, in uh, history books, and he's the, the the book I mentioned earlier is now used as course curricul- curriculum material in universities, and um, you know we go around to colleges and libraries and do lectures and slideshows and stuff. Oh, you you saw one at the Rotunda, right? Yeah, yeah, the uh, deconstructing dad. Uh, right, right, right. We did both. And, yeah, yeah. It took forever. Um, and it was worth it. And this Manhattan research has been sampled like crazy. And like, uh, you know, the band Gorillaz with a Z? Yeah. Their first album, they they have a whole track that's the rhythm through the whole song is a loop from Manhattan Research. And they titled the track Man Research. Um, uh, but they didn't clear the, the sample in advance. And the album ended up set, setting a Guinness Book record for the number of sales by a a virtual group because you know they have like these alter egos that are like cartoon characters or something yeah yeah so um and uh you know you know who dilla was yeah 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 light works and it's just it's just become this cultural thing uh, on twitter because of the dilla song light works it's become code in the in the pop culture for getting high they say you know the name of the game is Lightworks means, you know, because the line preceding it is light up the spliffs because he chopped up Raymond Scott's original to make it sound like that's what the singer was saying. So it's pretty, it's pretty interesting. It's been a, been a fun ride to take these tapes from my my little apartment on 4th and Catherine and broadcasting out over the world, you know. Yeah, it's – you're doing God's work. <laughs> well, something like that. I mean, you know, uh, the Simpsons have have licensed Powerhouse four times since since we started this, and you know he's just back on the map. And people reference him in other reviews of other albums and stuff, and as if you're supposed to know who he is now, you know. So it's pretty cool. I'm I'm thinking he'd be happy with our work. I would hope I hope so, and it's it's obvious that uh, his son is is happy too. So. Yeah, I think I think doing that film was a cathartic kind of thing for him. You know, yeah. the best he could do now that he's, his dad's gone. Yeah, you're doing you're doing God's work there. Uh, while I got you here, uh, have you? What's the status on the uh, Raymond Scott's Electronium? Last I heard, they got some sounds out of it. Mark Mothersbaugh bought the Electronium from us after Raymond died, and Raymond's widow wanted to move from to another house. For those who don't know, we'll have a, a link to the Wikipedia article on the on the Electronium. Yeah, yeah. Just briefly, Electronium is is um, a, a giant by our, by our standards today a giant instrument that Raymond Scott invented and built, um, an electronic instrument that has no piano style keyboard. It's just control panels with switches and knobs. Um, you could link to that video of me and Mark with it that could demonstrate it, what it looks like. But you see, it's sort of like this cockpit thing and. And it composed its own music with artificial intelligence. And it's a one-of-a-kind instrument. He made several others prior to this one, but it's the only one that's still around. And it was made from Motown Records in Los Angeles. And then Mark Mothersbaugh bought it from us in the mid-90s with the promise that he'd have it restored to working order. Um, it just sat at the first floor at Mutato for many years until they wanted to clear out that, that floor um, one of the reasons was to shoot that video for um, 
what's it called? What we what we do? Yeah. So they had to empty that that space, which is made on monumental tasks. There's all kinds of insane shit down there, weird instruments and stuff. So it was shipped up north to Seattle, Portland area. The guy named Darren Davidson, who uh, Mark knew because he was, he came to fix the um, the big printers at Itato. He works for Nike as a day job on the uh, automated assembly line machinery. And he's for the last few years, he's been trying to restore it, and it's very, very slow progress. He's been cleaning it and replacing power supplies and just basic stuff. And, yeah, he eventually got a little bit of noise out of it, but it's really it's, – it's not coming along fast. I'm, I'm not optimistic. You know, I'm, I'm not a technical person, but it just seems to me that a lot of it's missing and – I don't know. I just don't know what's going to happen. Um, interestingly, you know who uh, Gautier is? Yeah. Well, his real name is Wally, and he has sampled from Manhattan Research as well on his big album with the, with the huge number one thing where he was Artist of the Year and all that. Yeah. We actually talked about that album on an early episode of this show. <laughs> okay. Well, I, don't, I can't remember the name of it. but um, Making Mirrors, I believe. Okay. Yeah. So he, he's been in contact with us, and he's been calling me lately. And um, he's work- he sent me a demo of a piece he's working on, which he sampled, and it's got extensive, it's a really long p- piece with a bunch of sweets, like movements. But the other thing he wanted to talk to me about was the electronium and trying to get a restor- uh, more faster progress on the restoration. And he was even willing to throw his money at it. But he was sort of like hesitant to approach Mark, and he wanted to do it through me. So I don't know. I, I, honestly, um, the technical people at um, the Oddities Foundation, who have another Raymond Scott invention called the Clava Box, their suggestion is to forget this model, the one that Mark owns, to forget about it because it's too far gone to save. Instead, take the plans, the schematics, and blueprints, and, and rebuild one from scratch, which seems a lot more realistic to me. Could be interesting. So that's another that's another way we can do it funded by Gautier <laughs> as a financier. And, but then the other thing that people ask me about almost daily is what about doing a software version of it? You'd have to know how it works first. Well, you know, they have schematics and just endless amounts of paperwork about it. But um, people, some people think they want an iPad version of it, but then some people just sort of groan and think that's completely missing the point. They want the analog thing. They want to touch the knobs and feel the heat of the tubes and all that stuff, you know. So I'm not sure where we're going to go with it. I, I would love to, in some form or fashion, reopen Manhattan Research and, and market his intellectual ideas and, and render them in some form. That would be great. That would. So there you go. That's the status of the electronium. <laughs> well, it's... Uh... It, it's interesting, and I hope uh, hope it works. You know, maybe who knows? You run a Kickstarter to if to get the uh, get the, to do the rebuild yeah, or something. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, but, but I mean, you know, mo- money really isn't the biggest um, obstacle. It's more about like time and stuff. Like I know a guy who worked on that model with Raymond, but he's in New York. And Mark, he was he approached Mark a long time ago, and Mark was just hesitant to sign someone on at an hourly rate without having any idea how many hours that might be. I mean, it, I don't blame Mark. I mean, yeah, that's that it could be a white elephant, you know? Yes, exactly. I mean, it, it, it already kind of was in its first incarnation for Motown. 
I mean, Motown spent a lot of money on that thing, and we don't know what they have to show for their uh, investment, you know? If anything. Yeah, I mean, they had money to burn back then, and they were, Motown was always on the cutting edge of everything, and, if, and if, I'm sure it's the way they operated. They just, they just threw money at any direction they felt like, it, you know? They, they were top of the world. So, yeah, so I don't know. I, stay tuned. I mean, obviously, if anything happens with the machine, I'll be I'll be um, announcing it. Sure. Which a good question from that is uh, where can we find you on the internet for Raymond Scott stuff? Would be RaymondScott.com. I, I have a like a home base page, which is just my name, JeffWinner.com. It sort of attempts to collect all my my weird habits, my weird hobbies. I didn't forget about the Devo film, but I. I know the. I don't know who out there knows the status. Knows that's going. I I've been following it, but <laughs> so yeah, fill us in on yeah, because I don't know anything about what's happening with Forbidden Zone Two aside from that one little clip that got out. I I don't consider myself a filmmaker. I got into film sort of accidentally. I mostly I've done music production and music history and writing about music and and music history, and then um, for the experience of the Raymond Scott film. I started working in film just because, like I said, he, he needed me on the project because I'm the world's foremost expert on the topic. Uh, I didn't go to film school. I never intended to work in film, but then I ended up doing it. And then um, kind of a similar thing happened with, with Devo because um, I see my history with Devo really fast. I was a fan since I was nine. I met them when I was 18 and started doing a series of interviews with them in my 20s, which eventually formed uh, a basis for this book, which was published first, I think, about 10 or 11 years ago. And then the uh, same kind of thing, where this director wanted to make a documentary film based on the book, and so he contacted us um, to do interviews and get information, because the director was not you know, uh, an expert on the topic. He, he liked them and knew about them, but he was not like an obsessive fanboy like I was or like you are. So, um, and then like, I ended up being, you know, some sort of producer on that. So let's see, the film is pretty normal in a way. I mean, it's like uh, pretty much what you expect from a documentary film. It's a lot of archival footage and uh, interviews, you know, um, with just headshots and yeah, that's it. And, uh, the status of it, um, is being held up by, um, it's being delayed by a member of the band and, and, uh, it's done as far as we're concerned and it's good. And it's very interesting origins of the group, uh, how they met and came together at, at, at school and the Kent state shootings and all that. It's a really fascinating story. Um, we don't really have have a happy ending because we don't really have a happy ending to Devo, but what can I say? It's been a wild ride. Yeah, Devo. I mean, I mean, this is this is a really strange thing coming up in just a couple of weeks to see to see them as a four piece. You're going to be there, right, New York? Yeah, I'll be there. I didn't spend 125 bucks on a ticket for nothing. <laughs> oh, what do you get for that? Uh, the VIP uh, thing after the show. And that means you get to see them at a table. You've done that before, haven't you? Eh, it's more money for. I assume it's more money for Bob's family. Oh yeah, that's a good way to look at it. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's so sad. Hey, um, I apparently on the uh, Hall of Fame, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame show, they they have like an in, in memorandum segment each year, and they showed Alan and Bob in there. Well, that's good. So, um, yeah, one of the things I learned in making this film is just how big Diva really is, and how how much people actually like them now. Because most of my life, it wasn't the case. Uh, they were like either forgotten or, or ignored, or if they were referenced, it was in a disparaging way, as like they were a joke and meaningless. And that's one of the reasons we wanted to do the book and these documentaries, is so people would take them seriously. But I think that's already happened. I, I think thanks to, to, the, to Al Gore inventing the internet, you know, I think everybody can go back and see all their films and live shows. So yeah, it's completely turned around since the 80s and the 90s. The attitude about Devo, I mean, they really are respected. And they're kind of big time. I, I just realized that like two years ago. Crazy. I was about to ask about Forbidden Zone 2, which was a big surprise for me when that got announced. Well, why don't you try, because I can't do it. You describe to your audience what was Forbidden Zone, because it's indescribable to me. Um, it's sort of a movie musical that's very... Oh, goodness. Uh, no, Forbidden Zone is kind of the indescribable. It, it's a movie musical in the heavily, extremely surrealist movie musical that involves uh, Danny Elfman uh, and his, at the time, his band, the Mystic Knights of the Oingo Boingo, later shortened just to Oingo Boingo. And it was put together by Richard Elfman, the original front, the original leader of the band, and uh, Danny's brother. Right. Anything beyond that is just just look it up on on YouTube and there's clips and stuff. Yeah, apparently it was um, an attempt to make a movie that kind of captured their live show at the time, which I think started in 1973, and was much bigger than just a band. It wasn't just a rock group; it was like a whole theater thing. I've seen the the video of them on the Gong Show. Yeah, uh, <laughs> very strange. Yes, it is. Um, so. Uh, Richard has been wanting, wanting to make a sequel for a long time. He's finally doing it. And doing the music, again, is Danny Elfman and also my friend Ego Plum, who um, is a, a colleague of mine, associate of mine, and like his uh, informal manager, promoter. And um, so by way of him... Richard um, sent me a check, and um, this was after we started working together. I, I started doing uh, websites for him and, and started doing the funding campaign. And he sent me a check with no explanation, and I called him back and said, well, what's this for? And he said, well, I was hoping you'd be a, a um, producer of my movie. So um, that's, that's what we're doing. And this, so this is the first one that's, that's a movie rather than a documentary film, if you see what I mean. For me, um, one of the crazy things about that movie is the, the low budget and how the sets were made out of cardboard and all that. You know, how old were you when you first saw it? Uh, twenty six. <laughs> and what did you think? Did you like it right away? I did actually, but I, I've been sort of like trained for it by you know being a, a Noingo Boingo fan and a Devo fan oh, and a Zappa yeah. fan. And let me tell you some trivia about that. Richard told me. That Diva was originally scheduled to be in the, the schoolroom scene of Forbidden Zone. Hmm. 
And this was like in 1979, I guess. And they were supposed to do Giacomo in that scene. But they didn't, they show, they canceled or something happened. It never, never happened. Uh, so an idea that I had was to put, put them into the sequel somehow. So that might happen. Maybe. Maybe Boogie Boy can be in there or something like that. Fingers crossed. Yeah. <laughs> that would be pretty good. So, um, I don't know. Is, is that, is that everything about Forbidden Zone? What, what can I say? Um, Richard is, uh, he's really dedicated to it. He's, he's so enthusiastic. Um, you wouldn't believe that he's 65 years old, but I mean, he's just like a little kid. He's so, he's so, so into it, you know, just so happy and focused. He just got married, you know, it's like he's starting his whole, a whole new um, chapter of his life, you know. So he wanted to return to uh, filmmaking after all these years. Cool. It's going to have a lot of his family, you know, um, Jenna Elfman has two roles, as does Bodie Elfman. He's got his mother in there. I've read the script and it's crazy. It's, it's racist and outrageous and just unbelievable. I don't know where he, where he comes up with this stuff. I mean, I feel the same way about the first movie. Like, I don't understand where it even comes from. It's not like it, it doesn't seem like it's part of a scene or, you know what I mean? Like, it's just, it's still, like, was he on massive amounts of drugs or what? <laughs> I don't know. It's crazy. I've never seen anything like that movie. Well, soon people will, and hopefully the sequel. <laughs> yeah, totally. On my websites, I don't think I've explained this, but we have, um, besides Dave Grohl and Iggy Pop in uh, the Devo film, we also have Blondie. And um, we were supposed to have Rollins. Um, Henry Rollins said he wanted to be, he wanted to do both that one and the Raymond Scott film. And I was setting it up so that we would shoot him one time in one day for both Raymond Scott and Devo because he's a huge fan of both and plays both on his radio shows. But then he's kept putting me off for like over a year and he still uses an AOL address, by the way. Wow. <laughs> and so finally a year later, I was like, okay, he's just not, you know, he's just talk about a busy guy. My God, he's like, Way overextends himself. I'm not. A, I'm not a huge fan of his music, but I admire him as a person. Well, how can you not? He's got such a work ethic, you know. Yeah, he gets stuff done. Exactly. Well, except for an interview for the two yeah, documentaries, ex- yeah. but yeah, but see, isn't that weird? He doesn't seem like the kind of guy who would just like string me along. If he didn't want to do it, he would say he didn't want to do it. Right. Right. Yeah. I think it was. It must have been just a genuine like uh, bad luck or something. We we almost got Elvis Costello too. That was a near miss. Oh wow! Yeah. Oh well. It's this is what the business is like. A big part of it is really tedious and and boring and um, not glamorous. A lot of it's tracking down source material and negotiating a uh, a fee for usage. That's a big part problem with the Devo films, paying for expensive stuff like Saturday Night Live, or you know. Uh, the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. You can't imagine how much that costs. Uh, I, I don't know if I can, actually. It's, it, it's probably that much. Yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. Anyway, um, is there anything else? Are we done? I think we are. Thank you so much for joining me. It's been a great pleasure talking with you. I'll see you in about uh, two weeks. Yeah, yeah. You'll be easy to spot. 
You're very tall. No, I'm not. Incredibly good looking. Well, well you're that, tall. That, I, I'm, I'm incredibly good looking, yes. Tall, not so much. You're taller than me. It's not saying a lot. Um, and you're going to be wearing a, a costume. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm going to. I'd probably be wearing. I might be wearing my uh, uh, one of those uh, blue boiler suits to the show. Yeah, I'm not I thought, sure. I thought, and a mask. I thought you had it all down. Oh God, that the, the, the mask does not work for me. <laughs> oh, why is that? You can't see through it. Uh, I'll I'll explain off the air. Okay, fine. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Richard. Thanks for having me on your show. Thanks, Jeff. Good luck with the good luck with uh, all the projects, and okay, thanks, thanks for joining me. Absolute pleasure. Okay, see you later. Bye, Dios.